0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books.
1: This episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the place to go get digital audiobooks over at audible.com. There are hundreds of thousands of titles to choose from. In a huge variety of genres, and you can play them on your iPhone, your Kindle, your Android, whatever listening device you have in your possession. And here is a killer deal, everybody. Right now, for listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 14-day trial. Go brush up on American history uh, with John Adams by David McCullough or No Ordinary Time by Doris Kearns Goodwin. Or how about In the Garden of Beasts? Love, Terror, Terror and An American Family in Hitler's Berlin. That's the Runaway Bestseller by Eric Larson. Any one of these titles can be yours free of charge. And if you do this, you know the drill. It helps the program. I get a little kickback. It's a nice thing to do. To download your free audio book, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. This is an amazing deal. It's available right now. These are books. You can listen to them
0: Just one person at just one time. Right. (laughs) Right. All right, everybody.
1: Here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is the brain exercise. This is the intimate author showcase. My guest today is Ramona Ossibel. She is the author of the new novel, No One is Here Except All of Us. It's available now from Riverhead in hardcover, and it is generating lots of critical acclaim. Uh, Ramona, as you may recall, had a short story called Atria, published in the April 2011 edition of The New Yorker. And uh, the April 4th, 2011 edition. And uh, she's had short fiction published in a lot of different places, and this is her first novel. So not a bad way to start out. She and I are going to be talking in just a minute. Uh, Otherwise, uh, what's going on? I'm working on my book. That's been uh, dominating things. It's been dominating my brain. And I've now entered a phase where I don't know what is going to happen. Where I'm not sure if what I'm doing is right, if it's working, if it's advisable. So, uh, you know, compared to like only a week ago when I was waking up like a kid on Christmas morning, uh, you know, ready to go work on this thing. I'm now waking up somewhat scared, uh, like I'm about to go into a coal mine. So I'm like 30,000 words into the book. And suddenly, you know, after all this time, after all these, uh, you know, after all these, uh, successful writing days, uh, I'm now wondering, you know, uh, like maybe not, maybe this isn't the right idea. Maybe all of this caffeine has led me nowhere. So what I tell myself uh, is to breathe. I tell myself that this is normal. This is a normal part of the procedure. That something would probably be wrong if this didn't happen. Because plenty of books, you know, plenty of good books, they go through these kinds of phases. They go through this stuff. It's like my manuscript is essentially going through an awkward phase right now. If it were a person, it would have braces and headgear and possibly some acne vulgaris, which is an actual term that I remember distinctly from uh, the Bukowski novel Ham on Rye. And I don't usually remember things like that, like that specifically, but uh, it always presented such a distinct image. Uh, You know, Bukowski uh, suffered from acne vulgaris when he was a child, and in this book he writes about it. And when I say suffered, I mean he really suffered. I mean, like, this is, a, this is a tough thing. And it's not like he had, like, proactive solutions or, uh, you know, like Retin-A. This was the old days. You know, he had to, like, have these things drained at the doctor's office. He had needles, like, stuck into his face. And they would drain him out. So it was pretty awful. Uh, and, he, and he didn't just have acne. You know, he had acne vulgaris. So, maybe just, you know, to say that my uh, my book at this point has acne vulgaris it might be a bit extreme at this particular juncture. You know, I'm not at the point where I'm I'm sticking needles into the book metaphorically speaking. I'm not draining anything from it yet. But I might have to eventually. You know, who knows. So, what right now is just acne could potentially develop into acne vulgaris. So, there's also the feeling, and I was thinking this earlier today, there's the feeling that this book could take me a lot longer than I originally thought it would, or hoped it would. You know, which can be sort of a drag. But at the same time, there's also the feeling that I have, that if I have to, I will work on this thing until I'm 65 years old. I do not give a shit. It will be my life's work. I will stay with it until I subdue it. I just want to get it right, you know? I don't want to compromise anywhere i don't want to settle and i I truly would rather write one really 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 good book or at least in terms of like you know write one book that's absolutely the best i can do with all of my energy every ounce of it possible i'd rather do that once than write like 10 or 15 okay books or even above average books in terms of effort does that make any sense anyway that's how i feel today Uh, But, of course, I also don't want to drive myself crazy. I would like to avoid that, if possible. So, uh, there's that. And then there's AWP, which uh, is a conference. It's the Association of Writers and Writing Programs. Uh, It's an annual affair. It's happening in Chicago this weekend. And as far as I can tell uh, online, it's like this big networking event for writers. You know, like every writer on social media is talking about this thing like it's Woodstock. And excuse me, I, you know, I've never been, and I, you know, I've never been to a writer's conference. I think the idea of it sort of makes me nervous. I don't know why it is, but I, I've always shied away, uh, you know, cause I don't mind being around people. I'm social, you know, or like relatively social, or I can be social. I just sort of like, uh, I don't know. I don't know how to handle it. It seems like a lot all at once. But uh, people keep telling me that I need to go. They tell me I need to show up and I need to uh, promote things. I need to let people know about the nervous breakdown and about this program. And I need to say hello and I need to be there and uh, such. And you know what? I'm sure it would be fun. I'm sure it would be. Uh, And I I think that I would enjoy it once I was actually there. And I do love Chicago for another thing. Uh, Plus, my sister lives there. So I could go see her and a visit with her. So maybe I'll go. I don't know. Uh, As of right now, this moment, as I sit here recording this, I do not know what I'm doing. Uh, I think it's going to be a game time decision. Be a last minute uh, operation. If it does indeed transpire. And uh, if I do wind up going and I'm there and you happen to see me because you're there too, uh, please know that I'm probably going to look a little lost and possibly a little frightened. In which case, uh, please come say hello to me. Please come network with me. (laughs) We can network together, which is uh, kind of a loathsome word. Networking. It's like team build. Let's do some team building. Let's go watch a panel and network. Let's go team build. Let's go brainstorm. Let's go synergize. So, I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do. It's kind of freaking me out. I'm a little freaked out right now, and I'm probably overthinking this. Because that's pretty much what I do. That's uh that's my gift. I am thinking about what I am thinking about.
0: Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow
1: I want to start. We should just uh, say we were just talking uh, about being parents. Congratulations on your new baby!
2: Thank you very much. Baby. I have twins, actually. I have the book and the baby.
1: Oh yeah, exactly. We're like,
2: exactly the same.
1: Time. So, okay, so like, what was that? I mean, in fact, I think I just had a conversation with somebody recently about this. Or no, I was talking to Claire Bidwell Smith. She's like 18 weeks pregnant, uh-huh. and she also has this book coming out. I mean, I know it's sort of like an obvious metaphor, but when you're having a baby, you know, baby's on the way, a book is on the way, it's like just double the emotional effect.
2: Yeah, totally. I feel like my synapses are completely shot from excitement.
1: Well, no, and you just, and you've had like such a good rise. Like, you know, like you Uh had like the story in the New Yorker and you got into Cal Irvine, you know. It seems like you've ticked off a lot of, like, the dream boxes on your way to publishing a novel, no?
2: Yeah, it's been pretty amazing. Yeah. I don't know how that happened. You don't know? No, not really. I uh, mean, no, I don't really.
1: It just happened. I feel
2: like it was just incredible luck. I worked really hard. Yeah. But a lot of people work hard. Right. I don't know that I deserved it more than anybody else did.
1: It just sort of... Um, okay, so... I'm not
2: going to turn it away.
1: Right. No, I mean, but no, it's, like it's, it's, it's refreshing to hear you say that because, you know, it, I think it's tempting... When somebody has like a story published in the New Yorker or or somebody gets into a great MFA or some, you know, just good things happen professionally. You're like, what is that person doing? Mm -hmm. You know, like what magical secret do they know? Or like they must be an amazing strategist or they must be great in a room or, you know, like, do you feel like there's anything like that that you have? Like, do you feel like, oh, you know, like I just, I'm really good at preparing for a meeting or I'm really good at applying for stuff or I was an amazing test taker. Like Oh,
2: God, no, not that for sure. Yeah. No, I bake cookies for people. Okay. I always do that. See,
1: I didn't do that. Yeah, well, L- that's look, right. But look we, at me. It
2: wouldn't have sounded so good if we were <laughs> just crunching. Ice it's all right. Next time.
1: Right, right. <laughs> but, you know, this like, so is just like nothing else. Just basic, basically cordial. You bake cookies. You write thank you notes. I do.
2: I always write thank you notes. I yes. do, too. Yes. I do, too. I think that's very important in the world.
1: Yeah, I actually do, too. Like, like as a parent, I'm going to mm-hmm. impart that, I think, to, totally. my, to yeah. my daughter. Like, you yeah. have to write a thank you note. And handwritten, too.
2: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I agree. Yeah. Okay.
1: So... Uh, let's just start with The New Yorker, because that seems like the hardest fortress to, like, you know, crack. How did that happen?
2: Well, I have to say, I didn't have much to do with it. My lovely agent was wonderful, and he had been sending stories there for a while, and I had given up on it. He's, I have a story collection coming out next year, too, and so he sent the whole collection over. And months passed, and I thought, oh, he's just being nice and not telling me that they've rejected everything I've ever done. And then he called one morning last March and said, so I sold Atria. To the New Yorker, I was like, "Holy shit, are you kidding?"
0: <laughs> right, right. And I
2: kind of cried and called everybody I knew, and it was in print ten days later.
1: Okay, so okay, because I talked to Ben Laurie on this show, and he's a buddy of mine, mm-hmm. and he had a similar you know scenario where he had an agent submit a story. And it was like, yes, and then the story was in the magazine within, like, 15 days. And yeah. I, I always imagined that The New Yorker had some sort of insane lead time.
2: I know, right? Yeah. Wouldn't you think? I think they do sometimes. Sometimes they'll pick a story and they'll say, this would be great in our summer fiction issue. Right. And months pass. So. Or
1: when a story is just as magical as Atria, they just want to get it into print.
2: Well, maybe. <laughs> or it just, that actually, I think, had to do with the tsunami in Japan. Because all the earthquake, they were changing their coverage, they reshuffled everything. And oh right! So there was a room all of a sudden, and they needed to fill it. And luckily, <laughs> I was happen. standing around waiting. Uh,
1: okay, so like, take me through this then. The magazine comes out. Like, how early were you at the newsstand? Like, what?
2: Oh god, like immediately. But actually, it came to Santa Barbara much later than everywhere else. So. It took like three days, I think, before I got the copy. After everyone else was calling me and saying, like sending, "I just got it,"
1: sending you, sending you pictures. Yeah, and stuff.
2: I'm like, I want this thing in my hands.
1: Right. Oh my. So do you yeah. have it framed or anything?
2: No, I don't have it framed, but I do have a bunch of copies. Yeah. Yeah. I should probably frame it. Somewhere.
1: Did you have? Did you have like a lot of interaction with them? Do they like? did they? I mean, because I, I remember Ben saying like they did like a really thorough job editorially. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's yeah. not like they just take it and just print it. Like, no, they, not
2: at all. No, we went back and forth a few times. They were great, though. I was worried. I thought that. I was gonna get really extensive notes and that I was gonna disagree and I was gonna to have to say, Oh well, you right. can do whatever you want, you're the New Yorker, I'm obviously not taking this back. Right. But every round was just really smart, excellent, and and very careful comments. Right. And and when I disagreed, they were fine with that. Oh so, really? Yeah. Yeah. It was a totally comfortable process. Okay.
1: And so were you in graduate school when this happened or No, a- I wasn't. It after. was after, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I
2: finished grad school in two thousand eight.
1: Oh, you did? Okay. So what was Cal Irvine like?
2: It was just fabulous. Was it? I totally loved being there, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a really tiny program. There's just six students per year. So you get really? to know yeah, yeah 6 6. Yeah. Oh, shit. So 6 in the first class and 6 in the second. So you're there're 12 of you in workshop. Okay. And you get to know each other and your work really really well. It's like Lord and of the Flies. It's Exactly. Like, yeah. Yeah, you you hope you have a really nice class which I fortunately did. So uh-huh. and the two professors Michelle Latiolle and Ron Carlson are just outstanding and are dear dear friends now because of the size we just we spent a lot of time together and I think I'll know them forever. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. So
1: it wasn't like you didn't find like there was like this cutthroat competitive type thing that sometimes emerges in workshops Not
2: at all. In fact, it felt like the best kind of competition. Like I remember the first day of workshop, I got the stories the week before and I read them and I was like, oh my goodness, these are incredibly good. I had better get my shit together and rise to the occasion, put something worthy of this table out there. And it, I think my writing got 10 times better. just. By reading everybody else's work before I even started. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Like, uh, I, this is better. I'm going to have to do this well. That's so actually there's no point.
1: You know what? That's actually a really good point. Like, if you're in a workshop situation and you're with people, it's kind of like when you're. I mean, this is really kind of a reach, but when you're skiing and you're skiing with yeah, people yeah, who totally. are really better, you know, who yeah. are really good, you just wind up doing stuff that you didn't think you could do.
2: Yeah, I think that's true in the world in general.
1: Yeah. I mean, so okay, because like, yeah, that may, I mean, just that pre- that social pressure of wanting to make sure that when people take your story home, that they're not just like.
2: Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah exactly
1: and there was yeah. nobody like that did you find that everybody that they had accepted into that program i mean with a number as small as six per semester
2: Hmm. Per well yeah for the whole year or so. for the
1: whole year yeah. oh and it's a two-year program right. yeah like they must be extru- i mean they must be really picking some good writers they
2: really are and really different writers too they do a good job of picking a whole class instead of just picking their top six so You've, everybody's completely different. There isn't any sort of clashing competing. These are the two people who are trying to do this thing, and so they're kind of at each other the whole time. Yeah. If we were we were really up to different projects, so we got to appreciate those other projects and help boost them because you weren't losing anything. It wasn't like I don't want to give him this good idea because that was then it's not in my book right. Yeah, so I think, and yeah, I mean, really, it was a really strong, everybody was great. Some people I think were more insecure than others, but basically I think the level of the writing was just excellent across the
1: board. Well, what about you? Were you pretty secure compared to other people or did you feel I like you were... I
2: was after the, my first workshop, I got completely reamed by, by the teacher, oh. which we've I've talked to her about it a lot of times since then, but it was an older piece that I'd sort of been working on and hoping, you know, I gussied it up and I was really hoping and I was... I was the last person to go up in the cycle. So it was five weeks into the program. Nobody had seen anything from me yet. And uh, it was a piece written from the point of view of like a 12-year-old girl. Mm. And she, the professor, said, this sounds like a five-year-old. And this is really elementary and lots of things. So I kept it together in workshop. I did not cry, but I did never cry never a lot cried. after. <laughs> never
1: cry in workshop I know, if you, you can really, help it. I know.
2: You really, really don't want to do that. So <laughs> that was the worst thing in the world at that time, but right. then it made me put everything down that I'd thought about before and start over and start doing stuff that was bigger and harder and weirder, and I think... And actually, Atria was the next story that I wrote. Oh, so, really? Yeah. So I, I really feel like if she hadn't kind of kicked my ass that first day, I never would have written that story, and that put me in a whole new path.
1: So how do you... I mean, like, when you work on a short story, because, like, this, that form... I find really interesting and I think that, you know, it's obviously like really compressed and, um, I don't know what's, I'm trying to find the right language about it, but you know, when you're, when you write, when you sit down to write a short story, um, how does it go for you? How long are we talking about? Like, are you getting this thing done? And like when you wrote Atria, was it like it shot out of you in a week and then it was just polishing or is this something that you labored over for months and months and months? I
2: think the first draft I got out pretty quickly. Usually I try to write a first draft really fast because I am i feel like it's going to get away from me otherwise. And if I get bored with it at all, then it's impossible. So if I write half a story and I put it down for a few weeks, then I, often I don't remember why I cared so much about it in the first place and I can never finish it.
1: Did you preconceive at all? I mean, do you have an idea of what the story is in, in, in Sometimes, full? Sometimes,
2: but not always. With that one, I had the concept and I didn't know how it was going to end yet, but I knew that what would it be like if you were pregnant and you didn't believe that you were going to have a human? So I, and that, that having just been pregnant, I think that doesn't seem so weird at all. Actually, it seems completely logical. Right. So um, I think I started with that and after maybe a couple of weeks, I probably had a draft and then I worked on it for a while and then I put it down and I worked on it for a while. So it was years before it was really done, Uh but I, I wasn't working on it for years at a time,
1: really. You would just kind of go back and revisit and polish and do all that. Yeah. And you always knew... Uh, that you were gonna eventually try a novel, or did you feel like, well, I'm just I mean, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, I think anybody who goes to like Cal Irvine MF you know, to get their MFA has some sense of wanting to write a novel.
2: I think probably hoping mostly. Yeah. yeah. I think I hoped, although I didn't think about it that much. Those first two years there I tried to just focus on stories and I, I hadn't written that much prose. I studied poetry in college, so huh. I applied to Irvine with the fifty pages of prose that I had and I didn't really know what I was doing at all. So I figured it would probably be a good idea to You didn't know stories. what you were doing, but
1: you got into Cal Irvine. That's yeah, pretty was, good.
2: Yeah, that was nice. I didn't expect that at all.
1: Yeah. Was, yeah. What was the stuff that you submitted?
2: It was part of this novel, actually. Oh, it was? Okay. It was the very earliest version of it. Wow. And so then I... Com- but I didn't believe that it was going anywhere. I thought, this this thing is stuck. I just... Here I have these pages. I'm going to try to get myself into grad school so I have some time to do some writing. Mm-hmm. And, and then I got there and thought... Good. Now I can abandon that project because it's obviously never going to work. So then I wor- worked on stories for the whole two years in workshop, and I didn't pick the novel up again until the end of that. So
1: how many? So, did you just have 50 pages or did you have more that you were drawing I think it from? Was about
2: it. I think it might. Maybe I had 60. Yeah. But it was, yeah, it was not much.
1: That was about it. Yeah. Okay. So that's sort of interesting because like even with the short stories, like, you know, you'll do like a big significant burst of work on a story or you'll finish a draft. You'll do like a burst of work on this novel and then you'll go away from it. And then you'll return to it Mm -hmm. and then you'll polish it or whatever, you know, you want to call it. And that seems to be a consistent thing for you. Yeah, I think so. And like, you know, because it's interesting because sometimes people say, well, like, you know, I've talked to writers in this program where they say, if I'm working on something, I want it to be in a compressed period of time because I want to try to, you know, harness whatever state of mind or whatever energy that I'm in. And I want to make sure that I get it down on the page. And Mm -hmm. I feel like if I leave it and then come back to it after an extended period of time, I might lose that or there might be some sort of like lack of consistency to the work. Mm -hmm. But then I guess like the flip side of that is that you go away and your subconscious gets to kind of do its thing and sort of process what you want to say about it or how you want to address it when Mm -hmm. you get back. And then you return to it with like, you know, renewed energy and maybe better insight.
2: That's how I feel. Yeah. Yeah. I think I've, I think I do feel that way about the first draft that I need to get it all down before I turn my back on it because I might not because my first drafts are really really a mess I'm not trying to make any sense I'm characters in this novel the first draft I wrote in five and a half weeks and it was nonsense there were characters that would appear and then I would abandon them a few pages later and I didn't fix any of my every word the was spelled with the h first I didn't fix anything I just I was just typing 10 pages a day and moving. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then, so I definitely needed to have it down to feel like I I got it. It's there. It can't get away from me now. I've trapped it. Right. And then coming back to it and back to it and back to it. It's sort of like each time I felt like I was adding a layer or then later sort of taking a layer apart and putting it back together again. Yeah. Something like that.
1: Well, no, it's interesting because like... the first draft and like you always you hear different things it's like allow yourself to write like a a shitty first draft Mm -hmm. or whatever the you know language is right but uh, one of the things that's tough about it is that like you have to be sort of honest with yourself there's like I think it's kind of a fine line because if you let yourself write a shitty first draft and you are just sort of you're too loose with it then you're you're allowing yourself to write lazy Mm -hmm. you're not giving like your full energy and attention to Mm -hmm. it but conversely like if you're too exacting and you're not you know if you're too restrictive and you're kind of, uh, you know, uh, what's the word like getting yourself tangled up or not allowing yourself to be creative and make mistakes, which Mm -hmm. is a necessary part of the creative process. Then you can screw yourself up on that end. Like, how do you keep an equilibrium?
2: Who knows? There are so many pitfalls. You can just screw everything up in a million different ways every day. (laughs) So, I
1: mean, do you have like a ritual or do you have like a... I don't know. You just do what you do intu- yeah. intuitively.
2: Yeah, basically. And yeah, sort of feel my way along. And, yeah, give up on it for a while. And there were some times during the writing of this novel where I really, really did believe that it was not going to work. And it had been proven. I had worked on it for years. And it is not going to work. I'm going to do something else. And right. And then I will be struck with something in the least convenient of places. Once my husband and I were traveling, we took a trip around the world. Um, doing, I was pretending to do research on another book that I knew I wasn't really actually going to write, although now new things have come out of that, so maybe it will turn into a different book. But
1: sure.
2: um, we were in the middle of the trip, and we were. I had been thinking about the novel, and I had sort of given up on it, and then I, was, I got this idea that I needed to completely change the point of view. So we stopped in Egypt for a week, and I pulled out our tiny little retarded laptop that we were carrying and changed the whole point of view i just worked on it every day drank smoothies so uh, it was a lovely place to do it on the red sea
1: good smoothies on the red sea good smoothies yeah and jamba juice or are we
2: like like the the way that there are hippie enclaves all yeah. over the world that are exactly the same yeah it was those kinds of smoothies okay you were supposed to you know smoke a hookah uh-huh. drink the smoothie maybe pet the what, feral cats is
1: a, it is a, is a hookah is it just tobacco
2: yeah Yeah. So you're just smoking tobacco. Mm -hmm. Okay. But it's quite lovely actually.
1: Have you done so you did that? Yes, really. So So you were when when were you doing this?
2: This was in two thousand nine. So
1: you were just, that was like Air, no, that wasn't Arab Spring. That no, was 2010. It was before, yeah, yeah. So you were just traveling around the world. Yes. You encircled the globe.
2: We did. Where'd yes. you go? We started in Morocco and we we mostly stayed on the ground. We took a couple of flights later, but um, through Eastern Europe, we went to Ukraine when this book was set and it was one of the stops, and then through the Middle East, and then East Africa, India, China, and Mongolia.
1: Holy shit.
2: Yeah, it was awesome.
1: Wow. How long were you gone? Nine months. Oh, my God. Yeah. So give me some stories. Did you ever, were you ever in danger? Did you ever have any wild animal encounters?
2: There no wild animal encounters. No, probably the most dangerous animals were, like, cats that
1: maybe were kind of gross. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but, just rabies. Yeah, just a little Just rabies. your basic rabies. Yeah,
2: no problem. You just have to get that awful shot in your stomach. You'll really be fine. <laughs> I think the only time I was afraid on the whole trip where I was really afraid was in Kenya. We were on a little minibus. um going out to this lake outside Nairobi and we suddenly the bus, it was really full. There were way too many people, you know, there were probably like 25 people for a 10 seat bus. Mm -hmm. Um, and it suddenly pulled over. There was a barricade of people in front of us. It pulled over and people started shaking the bus and it was just, just my husband and I, as far as white people go. And I had no idea what was going on They're yelling and screaming and somebody Ended up, we had everything with us, so it was like if we, you know, if we were taken away or something was stolen from us, it was going to be miserable. Um, but we, we somebody sort of led us out, and it was a little worrisome—were they on our side or not? But right. he turned out to be a nice guy, and he was—he walked us to our hotel, and it turned out that it was there, a fisherman had drowned in the lake, and they were protesting; they wanted the government to pull his body out. The government didn't think that they should bother with that, but. Who knew? It could have been anything, and it right. was totally terrifying. It was the only time where I was like, "We are trapped, and okay, there's so nothing we can do except for hope that this turns out okay."
1: What was your? How did you behave? Because like, sat it, there
2: very quietly. Did you? <laughs> yes.
1: Isn't it funny? Because like, okay, I had a similar experience, not a similar experience, but I had a potentially dangerous experience, like truly. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, the I, I, used to, I used to teach at uh, Santa Monica College. Uh-huh. It was the very first day on the job, like very first day, uh-huh. and I'm walking across campus. It's the first day of fall semester, and right in front of me, this close, you know, a few feet away, these two guys square off, and I'm inside my own head. I'm, like, preparing, like, what am I going to say to these people, you know? I've never taught a class in my life, and uh, these two guys square off nose to nose like they're about to get into a fist fight, and all of a sudden, one of them like reaches into his pants and pulls out a pistol and holds it to the guy's head. Whoa. And the guy that had the gun pointed like at his head, like literally almost touching his head. He turned around and ran away as fast as I've ever seen anybody move. It was like gone. Yeah. And people, like there were some screams and everybody cleared out except for me. And I had my teacher bag <laughs> in one hand. It was like, my feet were like nailed to the <laughs> pavement. You know, I was like, I was just standing there looking at this guy and I just watched him. And he like, tucked the gun back in his pants, like flashed some sort of sign at me, smiled and like walked away. And I was like, okay, so that's what I do. You know, like good to know. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Who knew that being a teacher was going to be so perilous.
1: Right. I mean, like, and then I was like, oh my God, I'm an employee. I had this whole like psychodrama, like where I was like, I should go report this. Like I'm responsible. Right. Yeah. And like, you know, I had, and so I went and, you know, it was actually really, it was actually really interesting because. I walked over to the campus police building, which I actually knew where it was just because it happened to be where near where you get your parking pass uh-huh. as a teacher. So I walked over there and somebody had already notified them. So I saw all these police officers, guns drawn, run out towards me and they looked terrified, like terror in their eyes because yeah. like they thought they were going to get into a gunfight. Like, you know, it was right. like, it they was, didn't
2: know that it was over yet. Yeah.
1: It was an interesting, but they wound up arresting the guy and it was like, you know, it was like, uh, what's the word? No, no gunshots. Right. You know? Yeah. So. Yeah. I don't know. I just I, it's fascinating when you get into those situations that y- you kind of see how you respond. Mm-hmm. And what are you going to do on the bus? You can't like Yeah. You can't talk, you don't even speak no, you their can't. language. Right,
2: exactly. You yeah. can't be like, "Please don't hurt me." <laughs>
1: <laughs> There's nothing to see here. Please yeah. step away from the bus. I don't have
2: any money. <laughs>
1: <laughs> just traveling around the world. Exactly. Got nothing.
2: Nope.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. my god. Okay, so then you got out. You went to your hotel.
2: Uh, yeah, it was fine. Everything was fine.
1: Okay, so what about favorite places?
2: There was really nowhere that I didn't love, is one. It was a hard question to answer because it was, every place was so different. That's uh-huh. one of the things about a trip like that. It felt like every new region was like, whoa, this place is amazing in a whole new way. Yeah. So, um, favorite, going to visit, to go to the villages where my family came from and where my husband's family came from. He's actually from We about, like, 100 miles away from my little zone, which we didn't know until we went there. Oh, wow. That was pretty amazing. It was That was a big highlight. Did you
1: meet, sure. like, ancestor or relative? No,
2: nobody's there anymore. Okay. But we did find my great-great-great-grandfather's headstone in the oh, cemetery.
1: No shit. Yeah,
2: that's pretty cool.
1: Oh. What did you do? Did you like, did you have a moment? Did you lay some flowers down? We
2: we cleaned it off. We took a while to find the, we didn't know where it was. I had somebody sent me a cousin of my grandmother, sent me a photograph of the gravestone when he was buried. So it was all clean and nice. Uh It was like 1939. I think he died. Right. Um, so we knew where the cemetery was and we got there. We had a really nice guide who was helping us. And,
1: Cemetery was, guide?
2: No, just normal guide. He was driving us to all of the villages because we couldn't get there on the train. So uh-huh. he was helpful and and translating so that we could find information out. Of course. Because yeah. we don't speak Ukrainian very well. Uh-huh. Um, so we got to the cemetery and we sort of jumped out all jolly. We're going to go find it. And it was huge. It was like, I don't know a mile square or something was enormous thousands and thousands and thousands of graves and completely grown over the Jewish side of the cemetery. The Catholic side was okay. So, um, we, started wandering through was like trees growing over the gravestones and vines and thorns and wild onions and so we're tramping along looking at all these falling down headstones just hoping that we came upon it for about two hours
1: how did you know there were wild onions because you could smell it oh you You could crush them
2: yeah you'd step on them it was like this really strong oniony smell that makes sense yeah it was kind of beautiful. It was sort of sad. Obviously, there was nobody there to look after these things anymore. All family members had gone far away. Mm-hmm. But it was also really beautiful, just sort of hauntingly lovely. Right. And, and finally, we'd sort of given up. And the guide ran off, and he found this guy who was working in the old falling-down synagogue. He had just sort of figured out that no one was using it, and he could have a carpentry shop there. So he was building some things and he had also developed a side business of for people like us when we would roll through and ask, "Hey, do you happen to know where this person is buried?" He had gone through and cataloged every single grave and made a map. So he said, "Yeah, for 50 bucks, I'll take you to it." Done. Yeah. So we went and there it was, way back in the corner in the middle of a whole grove of trees. And we cleaned it off and said hello. Tamped
1: it out a little bit. Yeah,
2: exactly. Oh. What's up, Pirsch? <laughs> How's it going?
1: <laughs> okay, so this is a good place to transition because, like, I want to talk to you about your book, and I want to talk to you in particular about um, how it's rooted in uh, family history, your family history. Mm-hmm. You know, this isn't—I mean, this is an act of the imagination, but it's rooted in truth. Yeah. And can you talk a little bit about the, the process? Because you know, the, one of the interesting aspects of it is. Um, you know how you can start from, uh, fact and move into fable and, you know, what was that process like and how do you, how do you feel about taking this sort of base of truth and then launching off into, you know, directions that are completely, um, surreal or whatever you want to call Uh them, you know?
2: Well, it started at first, I thought I was just going to write the story a little bit more, not factually, but sort of closer to the way it had been told to me by my grandmother. And it was just not very good because she's a great storyteller in her way. And I was doing a terrible job at telling her stories her way. So I, that sort of, that was when I first, that was that first draft. I had those pages of like, this is sort of the story, the way she told it to me. And and I had stopped because I didn't know where else to go with it. Because mm-hmm. I'd sort of used them up. I didn't know how they were connected to each other. I didn't know what else happened.
1: But you knew they were good.
2: I knew they were good. I knew they were they're great stories. They're really great. Right. But, yeah. So, but I didn't really have the whole picture yet. I didn't know what else I had to say.
1: Like, g- give me some give me some examples of like uh, the stories that she was telling you. Like, just like what are some like one? What's one of the good ones? Or
2: well, my great grandmother was adopted by her aunt and uncle. Her parents decided that they would just transfer her over to that family when she was eight, I think, because that their aunt and uncle didn't have any kids and her parents had a few. So they thought, oh, you should just go live with them. But actually, in fact, they adopted her sister first and returned her because she was too stupid. Oh. So. Damn. <laughs> yeah. That's harsh. So sorry. <laughs> yeah. I actually changed that in the book. I felt too bad about it. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, I know. Creative yeah. license. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah.
2: So she she lived the first half of her childhood in one house and then just switched over. Oh. Um things like that. And my great-grandfather spent Three years in a prisoner of as a prisoner of war in Sardinia, having just the best time ever. He it was completely warm. He said he would say, as I was told, in his thick Yiddish accent, "The feather was warm, the women was warm." <laughs> it was wonderful. He just he ate pasta and hung out on the beach, as far as anybody could tell. Meanwhile, my great grandmother was escaping pogroms, literally surviving on tree bark with her children. Wow. Yeah.
1: So if you're gonna be, if you're gonna be a POW. Sardinia is not the worst place. (laughs) (laughs) That's so fascinating. I've never heard of anyone talk about, like talk fondly about a POW experience.
2: Exactly. I know who has.
1: So what did so he wasn't incarcerated.
2: No. And it was
1: just like, he was just like, basically you can't leave the island.
2: Yeah. You're here. We have your name down somewhere. So you have to stay.
1: Mingle with the beautiful Italian women. Yeah. What
2: else do you need? you need anything? you need something to eat? you need something to drink?
1: (laughs) Right. Wow. That's fantastic. Okay. So. Um, did you feel like, did you, like, I don't know, I guess like with the first draft, it seems like sometimes maybe you you, the first draft is where you're telling the story to yourself and then subsequent drafts are where you pare it down or polish it so that you're able to tell it to others. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So that aside, did you have to get to a point where you gave yourself permission to mangle the family history? Definitely. You, yeah. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like at what point did you just say, okay, I clearly can't do this, you know, straight up. So how do I take this and make it my own, and, and is that okay? Am I doing any disservice to my uh, grandmother and my great-grandmother? You know what I'm saying?
2: Yeah, definitely. Well, that's part of why I abandoned the project when I did at the beginning. I wrote those 60 pages, and I thought, nah, it's not going anywhere. Never mind. And then when I finally went to pick it up again, I, I part of it is that I just didn't know enough to write it truthfully. I had to, I had to fill things in with my imagination because there was no more information. So... I, that was the first kind of thing that boosted me to start making things up. But then I also started to realize that the story that exists for my grandmother is it already exists. She has it. It's done. There's nothing that's needed for it. It's going along nicely. So if I was going to do something new, then I was going to have to do something new and it was going to have to change. And I was going to have to be comfortable with that.
1: And then were there any components that were like off the table in terms of like changing them? Do you know what I'm saying? Where there's certain aspects of it where you're like, okay. This has to remain the same, but I can, you know, expound around it creatively? Or was it all just like fair game?
2: I think I felt like there was a kind of basic outline of the sort of plot kind of that I wanted to follow, but not so much because I didn't feel like it was okay to change it, but because those were my stepping stones. That's how I knew I was going to move forward is I don't know how I'm going to do it yet, but I know I'm going over here somehow.
1: Right. And you, so you don't work with an outline? Or?
2: No, God, no. I'm such a, I wish I could. I just can't. I get, I get bored or frustrated that I'm, that I'm only, only, I look at my little map and I'm like, I'm only a millionth of the way there. Yeah. I'm never going to make it. Yeah. Forget it. I can't outline
1: either. I'm not an outliner. No. I feel like though my, I always say this, my life would be easier if I could. Totally. I envy the people who can like create the detailed outline of their novel and have this like, you know, intricate map and have it all sorted out.
2: Yeah, totally. Those writers who are like, well, I just write one really good sentence and then I write the next really good sentence and I keep going until the book is done. That's like, me. You jerks. Yeah.
1: <laughs> like, yeah, well, no, yeah. Oh, I, you mean just like... like
2: the, who know that it's gonna? they're never going to look at it again. It's going to be finished
1: Oh, after right. That. I think that's bullshit. Yeah.
2: No. I mean, like, maybe. There are a few. Maybe.
1: I know. I read an interview with Arundhati Roy once uh-huh. about the God of Small Things. Yeah. And she said she wrote it in a straight shot and didn't change a word.
2: That's just so I, unfair.
1: I just don't... I don't believe it. Yeah. I just don't believe it. Unless... I mean, I don't know. I have a hard time believing that compositionally you're not deleting or. Right. I, you know.
2: Because how do you know that it's going to actually be right? Mm. Unless
1: it's like brewing in your subconscious for all this time. People's right. minds work in different ways. Yeah. But like, I'm, I'm very suspicious of anyone who, like, on the road. I, that didn't, right. That didn't come I out know. like an yeah, a, Oh,
2: yeah. One long scroll. Whatever.
1: Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Sure. So I'm glad we solved that. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, <laughs> it's been solved. It's bullshit. Um, but, you know, with regard to publication now. Okay, you have the novel coming out first, mm-hmm. even though you finished the story collection first. Yeah. So you sold both books to the same publisher? Yeah.
2: Yeah. How
1: did, how did that process go?
2: That process um, was actually really sort of easy. Once I, it took me a really long time to find the right agent. I hunted and hunted. Who's and your agent? His name is P.J. Mark. He's at Jane Clow and Nesbit. Okay. Awesome. Um,
1: everybody loves their agent.
2: I do love my agent. But nobody, yeah.
1: you know what the thing is and I I think like I think about I mean not everybody. Some people have bad experiences, but I feel like most writers I talk to tend to love their agent. Do you think that's true?
2: I think I think yeah, I think usually. Unless I, like there's some they just turned out you didn't like each other or didn't right. or they did a terrible job. But right. usually they, they try to do a really good job. I think I, and they work really hard.
1: Like eight times out of 10 people. And I just feel like writers in particular are like especially grateful to have representation because A, it's hard to find someone yeah. to represent you. Mm-hmm. And then B, it's hard to find the right person because you're trying to find somebody who's got literary taste that includes you. Exactly. In a really authentic way. Yeah. I, don't th- I think it's really hard to represent somebody especially somebody who's new yeah if you don't truly respond to their work because you just have to go out and take rejections and totally. you know it's hard for them too
2: yeah definitely so I,
1: know. I don't know I've, I've always had like an like enormous love for my agent too because she took me on when like nobody else was yeah. you know like, I know
2: you feel like you adopted me huh? yeah, yeah exactly. out of the shelter right. mangy right right <laughs> yeah
1: so yeah so PJ was the was the one yeah and yeah. that's a guy yes okay yeah. Yeah. And so did you publish the story in the New Yorker and then the collection sold?
2: No. The collection
1: no. sold? Oh, they he they sent the collection over? Yes. Okay. Yeah,
2: yeah. So he, and one of the reasons that I loved him right away is that he picked me up before I would show him the novel. Oh. So he read the collection, he really liked it, and he was willing to sign me then. So I felt like... Any agent who's willing to sign you based on short stories alone, and you're promising that there's something else coming, but who knows? That frequently doesn't work out, so I felt like I could trust him, and that he trusted me, basically, which was really a big deal. So a few months later, I did finish a draft of the novel that I felt good enough about to send, and he was really happy with it. Okay,
1: so what draft was that, and how many subsequent... That was
2: draft 16.
1: What? Yeah. Okay, so how many drafts did you get to before we get to the final product?
2: I think it was another another good one and a half until it was totally done.
1: Oh, okay. So, so it's
2: like 17 or 18.
1: And, and so, okay, so how do you know? Like, okay, I, I think about this. Like, when you're writing a novel, are you going through every day and rereading from the start to, like, where you are, more or less? Are you rereading, like, the last 20 pages up to where you are to get back into the flow, and then you start writing again?
2: Well, I think I didn't actually reread almost anything the first time I wrote it because I was just trying to keep going forward. Mm-hmm. So I just would... Be like, what was that? What was happening yesterday? Oh, yeah, something about this. All right, we're starting there. And go. God, it's
1: such discipline. <laughs> see what happens.
2: Well, sort of. It I is, just, though. I just felt like I was not going to be able to do it otherwise. That was the only way, is if I just didn't have a chance to look up and realize that this was a crazy, terrible idea.
1: Right. It's so. like You have to, like, suspend or yeah. fool yourself. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So, okay. So then um, how do you know that it was 16 drafts?
2: Because I sort of was keeping track. That was I would rename the document every time I sort of gone all the way through another time. Uh-huh. So that's how I kept track. Some of them were like easier drafts than others, where I didn't, I wasn't fixing absolutely everything. I was just working on one whole layer uh-huh. all the way through. Uh-huh. So it was mostly that I needed to be able to sort through everything, so that I didn't get confused about what I had done. One so
1: right okay yeah. and so then uh are you revising on a computer or do you yeah. revise on like paper manuscript i
2: printed it every few rounds probably Is it's, that it's of... definitely easier to read it on paper for me i am more successful that way
1: and then you change it on the computer
2: mm-hmm. yeah. yeah yeah mark it up because
1: like change. i always want to like mark up a manuscript i have that like thought but then i get going and i'm like oh wait a minute i'm just going to write this down and then go type it it's like it starts to get inefficient, but then the problem with editing on a computer is that like you can become kind of a busybody about mm-hmm. it. You can start noodling the thing to death, you know? right?
2: And you you end up getting caught on one paragraph when what you were trying to do is fix something about the whole chapter, right? And you're stuck, yeah.
1: So were people uh, were you giving it to other people besides PJ to read, or was it just him?
2: Not very many. I had given it to one really close friend. I'd, both of my teachers had seen it early on. And then I had given it to this one friend a couple of times in the in the years that I was like, working on like a girlfriend kind mm-hmm. of thing yeah, she was in the program. she' was a year behind me in the program uh-huh. and she's just a really, really smart reader, so she knew what I was doing. she was yeah. helpful and she was she would tell me the truth
1: oh she that's what you need I, know. I was gonna say because friends can sometimes be like, "It's great Yeah, this
2: is really nice. <laughs> I love this story
1: it's so it's so much fun No, that's not like Margo.
2: The, she was like, "This is really good, but you really need to work on some things
1: oh wow, yeah. okay, so and like what were you, were you getting though? The, I mean, because, like, you can you can tell. I feel like I can tell. And maybe it's just my head messing with me. Mm-hmm. But, like, I feel like I can gauge authentic enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. Were you getting what you felt were, like, encouraging signs in that regard when you would give it to people to read? They were like, holy shit, this is good.
2: They were like, yeah. They were like, holy shit, parts of this are really good. Uh-huh. It was definitely enthusiasm for something about it. Uh-huh. I think that everybody what was, was this something? thinking. What? I don't know. I think maybe that it was that there was sort of a whole reinvention, that the, there was something about the whole book itself and the story within it that was trying to do something in a new way. Uh-huh. And I think they were sort of excited about that, maybe.
1: Yeah, I mean, because, like, World War, you know, it's World War Two, like, that territory, historical fiction set in that time, Holocaust-related, There's a, it's, it's ground that's been covered. Yeah, yeah. So did you feel a pressure to make it new? Yeah, definitely. And how familiar were you with those kinds of books? I mean, you read a, I mean obviously you read at least a couple, but, I mean, like, did you really dig in and do, like market research? If, no, not I sure no, I didn't. No, I didn't at all. Yeah. And
2: I, I had to make a decision at one point because my family was actually there during World War One, uh-huh. and I made a decision in somewhere in the beginning-ish of writing that I needed to move it forward in time because I think that people the. The something about the Second World War is just—we all are familiar with it. We know, we just know, uh, and especially if there's anything to do with Jews, you just—you just totally know that it was the worst ever. Oh just god, yeah, so beyond anything, you don't have to say it. So I—I I wanted to not write the war. I wasn't really that interested in it. I just wanted that ghost in the background. So. I Figured out that people didn't know that much about the First World War. It was more complicated, war. It was more confusing. There wasn't a weird, was was there it wasn't was, the sort of good guy, bad guy thing. And
1: it was a lot more brutal. Like yeah. World, World War One was like, oh, yeah. that was the was worst. That to me was the. I mean, yeah. I, obviously they're all terrible, but like yeah. you watch the history and just the way that it was fought and what those people had to go through and yeah. how many people lost their lives. And like, that was a mess. Yeah,
2: it was really, really bad. But it's much less sort of clearly understood, I think, by the general populace.
1: Exactly, yeah. Yeah.
2: And I don't think that people think of it as a time that was particularly bad for Jews, although it was. There was that it was there were pogroms and everybody was constantly getting sent away and killed off and but we don't think of it that way. So I felt like I was gonna have to tell that whole story and the book was gonna be sort of weighed down by it. So I wanted to just gesture towards that right. and have everybody be like, uh-huh. it's almost
1: like, it's like, almost like the unseen character. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's there. And right. You don't need to explain that to people. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Here's like sort of a historical question. This is probably a dumb question, but it just popped into my head. So I'm going to ask it like, do, do, is there any historical, do we have any historical understanding of why Jewish people have been persecuted? Like where does it? What the hell is going on? Do you know know. what I'm saying? When you look back, like where did it start? Who got this going? Like what?
2: It's. I think it's sort of hard to understand. I don't really get it either. People commonly say that it's because they Jews were allowed to handle money, where Catholics and Christians weren't. So they looked like they were the sort of slimy money grubbing. Whatever, and they had some power because of that. And like, that Catholics maybe, couldn't
1: touch money. You
2: weren't supposed to. Yeah, it was dirty to to sort of transact money. You weren't allowed to to be a banker or anything like that.
1: Because the church held the money, right? Oh, okay, yeah. but yeah. the and Jewish did, faith the Jewish faith allowed for the people yeah, to it was handle,
2: fine. and you were also allowed to be a doctor. So there, the Jews were in these positions of power that were inconvenient to the ruling classes. I think that they were like. You guys, we need you to lend money, and we need you to take care of sick people. But right. We don't like you, and we don't like that you have all this power in the world. So that's one of the reasons that people, you know, get resented
1: or whatever. Yeah. I don't
2: know. I, that can't be the whole thing.
1: Yeah, I just, I, you know, I just because I I, I, I like history, and I have like this sort of like, uh, you know, persistent fear that I just don't know enough of it. Mm-hmm you know, it's just like, I I constantly look at a bookshelf or I go into a bookstore and I get like anxious about how many books I haven't read. Right. Do you know what I'm saying? And so like the certain things will pop up and I'll just be like, how the fuck did this happen? Mm -hmm. You know? And like, I also have, I think kind of an idealistic thing, where I, I'm just like, can't we just fix this? I know. <laughs> you know right. what I'm saying? Can, like,
2: can we just like look at each other and be like, let's move on? Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. We've yeah. done this let's for like, like thousands of years.
1: Yeah. Like, that, I mean, you know, the gay marriage thing. Just right, exactly. I was just thinking that I was like, are we really arguing about I this? Know. Let's just be done with this. This is a no-brainer. Yeah. Let these people have their weddings. Right. For God's sake. I know. But it, it doesn't work that way. No. We need to fix that.
2: We do. We really do. <laughs> <like>, no.
1: <laughs> um, okay. So childhood. You're from Santa Fe.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. This is interesting to me. <laughs> like lots of like Georgia O'Keeffe and mm-hmm. crystals and yes, topaz.
2: All, oh, all stones. All stones. Yes, we really, we accept them all. Yeah. Useful for different things. Know, have different energies. Yeah,
1: yeah. Right. <laughs> Ameth- Amethysts. So. Yeah.
2: Well, when I was, I think like eight years old, I broke my wrist. I fell roller skating inside my house uh-huh. and I broke my wrist and my stepmother did give me a crystal. No way. Before, long before anybody realized that I needed to go to the hospital. Yeah. Get the thing
1: set for <laughs> yeah. God's sake. Yeah. So, did you uh, spend your entire youth there?
2: I did, yeah. Start to finish. I when I was like almost 18. Okay. Yeah. So,
1: tell me about it.
2: It's lovely. I really, I love New Mexico. It's like no place else in the world. It's incredibly beautiful and and dry and strange and lots of weirdos. Yeah. It's a good place for weirdos.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, did you have like hippie parents or?
2: Yeah, basically.
1: And you said They're... you had a stepmother? Yeah. So, your yeah. parents like divorced when My you? My parents
2: divorced when I was really little. When you were really little. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, I grew up. It was totally normal. I can't even possibly imagine how they were ever married to each other. It doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah. They're really good friends, and they they appreciate each other, but they were not a good match. So.
1: Were they both in Santa Fe? Yeah. Okay, yeah. they were. Yeah, they so were you're... just down the street from oh, each other. Oh, so okay. Yeah. okay. So it's a good one. It's a good split. Totally good, yes. Right. Okay, yeah. so um, hippies?
2: Yeah. Big at tech? least in the beginning. They kind of... They're, now they're pretty straightforward they still have some solid hippie tendencies yeah but they've come around
1: well no I mean you know it's like I think about like my parents are kind of square
2: mm-hmm.
1: compared to a hippie I mean yeah. they're, they're cool people but I mean they're southern traditional yeah yeah you know people and so um, you know I think sometimes when people have hippie parents they kind of long for more structure. And when people have, like, you know, square parents or traditional parents or whatever you want to call them, they long for, like, a more permissive. Yeah. I feel like, you know, there's always, like, that back and forth. But, like, um, did you ever feel – I mean, it sounds like your parents were sort of, like, they found some sort of equilibrium as time pressed on or whatever. Yeah,
2: they did. Yeah, they were sane. They were never – there were the people who were, like, lived out on the mesa in the trailer with no electricity. And those kids – that I, was that was for real.
1: Okay, wait. Did I see a documentary about life on the mesa? Probably. <laughs> That's like a, the <laughs> it colony. Of, it's like the colony of people who just like basically live off the grid.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay, I did see that. That's fascinating. It is fascinating. Did you hang yeah. with those people?
2: Not that much, but I kind of knew them. There were some that were in my circle. My little sister, we have different dads, and her brother on the other side is he, his mom is like that. And he grew up out there and he still sort of lives out there. Uh-huh. That's pretty wild. Whoa. Yeah.
1: So, um what were you like as a kid? Like were was, you all were you always riderly?
2: Yeah, I was always riderly. I was super shy. I didn't like being away from my mom. I was pretty quiet. Quiet, yeah, shy, yeah, retiring. Yeah, talked to the dog a lot.
1: Did you? Yeah. <laughs> what did you say to the dog?
2: <laughs> I probably told her ridiculous stories. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So how like how old were you when you finally started to break out of your shell? Like, was it something that you carried through high school or was it something?
2: No, some- it was sort of somewhere in there. I think in junior high, I switched schools. I'd gone to little private schools for most of elementary school. And then I switched in junior high. And the big public school was awesome. I was like... There are hundreds of kids here. No one gives a shit about me. I can just be a person now. Right. And it was way better. I you was, liked it better. Yeah, I really liked it. I Did found you? friends, and those people didn't think I was so weird. And we we all went off together. It was great.
1: What kind of friends? I mean, what kind of group was this? Were you guys all like writing like poetry? And no, stuff?
2: they were kind of. They there were a couple of sort of poetry type eighth graders in there yeah. but they were kind of like normal kids they were they had, they had things like some of the girls had makeup and they had Barbies I was never allowed to have those things so
1: in junior high
2: yeah, yeah. Barbies well they probably didn't still have them but they had had them they had you had tell. them yeah, yeah, yeah. the marks were still there <laughs> <laughs> they probably still had little little heels yeah, yeah. it's like a pink Corvette hidden right. in the closet yeah the dream house was still yeah. <laughs> there
1: it. <laughs> so uh, fairly well adjusted then yeah, I think Crazy sort of, Rebellion anything?
2: I did kind of not go to high school. Meaning what? Meaning I I went to my freshman year at the normal high school and then I decided that I probably could talk my parents into letting me go to this weird private school, which I successfully did do, and that turned out to be terrible school. Uh-huh. So then I was like, Well, I'm gonna get out of this and I could maybe get into nothing else for a while. So I sort of convinced them that the school was crazy, but it was too late to put me back in the public school. So then I didn't do anything for a few months, and then I ended up at a school where you weren't required to attend. Okay, so I didn't beautiful. Know that much it was awesome. And and when you were ready to graduate, you just had to write an essay explaining why, which I did when I was 16.
1: So, Holy shit! So what was this school?
2: It was actually probably kind of a great little school. They had a lot of classes. You just you could elect to have a class. There was a faculty, and you could say I'm really interested in the class about transcendental meditation or cooking or whatever math. And somebody would figure out how to teach it to you. So when you did go, which you did only when you wanted to, you were probably pretty interested. And I did go sometimes and it was good. I, I had a cooking teacher there. I thought for a while that I wanted to be a chef and we made amazing things every day. It was really fun.
1: So were you doing like no math, no science? No,
2: I didn't do any of those things. So
1: do you know, I mean, you never took algebra or anything like that? Uh,
2: no, yeah. I, and look
1: at you. I know. You're fine. I'm
2: terrible at math, though. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah, yeah it's you can add Mostly it, some it doesn't matter. My husband can do it for me. That sounds so terrible. Gosh.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what, is he Is he like a math nerd?
2: He's No, he's not a math nerd, but he is he's, an, he's actually a grad student right now in environmental science. And so he is required to know some things about numbers and how they work. Uh-huh. So he can be helpful.
1: So what about the arts and like your in, you know your tendency towards writing? Like were your parents artists or what do they do?
2: Yeah, my family, especially on my mom's side, actually really both sides. Pretty there are a lot of writers. Oh really. And a lot of artists on my mom's side as well. So my grandmother founded an artist and writers colony in Illinois. And she Where? Was a poet her whole life. Outside Chicago. It's called Bragdale. Okay. It's on the North Shore. Yeah. Yeah. So her mother was a sculptor. You know that book, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil? Yeah. That sculpture that's on the front? Yeah. That's my great-grandmother's sculpture. So. No shit. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and so her father was an architect, so there's art all the way back. So
1: is that sculpture? Where does that sculpture exist?
2: It's in Savannah.
1: It's, it's in Savannah. A
2: graveyard in Savannah.
1: Yeah. I've been to Savannah. Yeah. I spent like three weeks in Savannah really? right after college. Yeah, my friend of mine went to SCAD. Uh huh. And like we were going to drive across the country together, but like he had to finish his school first. So, so I you just, just hung around. I just hung around and like went to see like the Forest go Park. That sounds Park. cool. <laughs> <laughs> this
2: was in a movie. This <laughs> is
1: the bench where for you know yeah. whatever it was like late '90s, so it was like actually not that far off from that movie. Right.
2: Back when that was. Really By
1: the way, like I have, to do. yeah, in that movie. I can't believe I like. I'm, I'm like one of those people who the first time I saw, I'm going to be honest with you. The first time I saw that movie, I liked
2: it. I did too. And
1: now I like hate myself <laughs> for that.
2: <laughs> <No>. <laughs> How could
1: I? I mean, I just like every subsequent viewing. I'm just like really like this. Like I was getting choked up at the end. Yeah. And, yeah.
2: Seen it in a really long
1: time. Yeah, that I one in Titanic it. too. Oh uh,
2: yeah, Titanic totally. I saw Titanic I every in, time I saw it. I, I
1: saw Titanic in a full theater, and I was I was by myself. Uh-huh. I was like I think I was like at my parents' place. I was like I'm just gonna go see this movie, and I remember seeing it in the full theater. And like when I, I walked out, like just thunderstruck
2: totally like yeah. and
1: then i've on subsequent views i'm like i'm like i am a moron i have See, no critical I think, faculties i
2: don't think i lost my moronic faculties because it, i still felt that way i really? still cried i think the next time i saw it too Did you? but i remember when it came out i saw it with my friend allison and we just bawled in the car after it's like how could we have gone through something so sad right now <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. it's yeah. just
0: yeah
1: it's it's troubling but yeah. i guess you got to give yourself an out i mean every once in a while you just got to Permit yourself to right. get emotional over yeah. a cheesy movie. Right. Okay. So um, you didn't go to high school, or you did go to high school, but you went to this really permissive sort of like self-directed course of study type exactly. high school. Yeah. Yeah. You write an essay to graduate. What was your essay?
2: Oh, God. I wish we still had it. I, I
1: would mean, kill
2: to read that essay. So
1: you didn't say I don't that.
2: remember what it said. Yeah. I can't. What could I possibly have said? I am I mean, so mature. Yeah, right? I know. Everything.
1: I'm ready to take on the world. Don't worry about me.
2: I'll be just fine. <laughs> I have no idea what I said. But apparently they accepted it.
1: They did. Okay. You know? And so, I mean, did they, was it one of those things where they pretty much accepted everybody or did they ever reject? Probably. Yeah. I don't
2: know. I don't know of anybody who was rejected. Did Maybe I ask? The parents were probably the ones who were like, honey, it's not going to
1: right now. Yeah. Did, did I ask you what this thing is called?
2: It's called the Tutorial School. It's a still tu- there. The Tutorial.
1: Yeah. Okay, so you graduated. Mm-hmm. There's not like really commencement.
2: There was. Think, there were like I think there were like four of us. Oh really? Yeah. We went to the sculpture garden. Captain I, I read some Winnie the Pooh.
1: <laughs> Did you really? Yeah. Oh god, yeah. this is so far removed from my high school experience.
2: <laughs> I know it's not very normal. And
1: then there's just like earth like spirit I just picture spiritual people in like mm. flowing garments or something.
2: Yeah kinda. Kinda, yeah. yeah. I went
1: to Boulder, so I mean oh, okay. I've had yeah, proximity. You, you, you got the taste. Yeah, I understand, <laughs> yeah. you know. Um and then uh, what happened after that?
2: And then I went to a college where I stayed in Santa Fe for a year and I took poetry and cooking classes at the community college, Uh both of which I liked very much. Uh And then my mom and my sister and I moved to Berkeley together and I was there for a year also taking, I had sort of stopped taking cooking classes and was then taking photography and poetry. And then I went to college. So I applied to college that year in Berkeley.
1: Okay. Yeah. Where'd you, you went to Berkeley?
2: No, I went to Pitzer college, which is in Claremont. East, oh. in the Inland Empire. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. How was that? Really good. Yeah? Yeah. What was what drew you there?
2: I think that it was small and that there were sort of normal kids, but also a little bit weird. It wasn't too weird. Like, I didn't really... I visited Hampshire and Bennington, and all those kinds of really weird schools, and I felt like, I'm weird enough. I don't need to have this, these people around me. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> like, just like, you know, kids who are vaguely normal, but who have done interesting things. Right. So. That was kind of a good fit.
1: So you wait. So your mom and your sister and you then took off to Berkeley. Mm-hmm. What prompted that? Just like let's go try Berkeley.
2: Yeah, my mom had always wanted to move from Santa Fe. She'd been there for a really long time, and she'd always wondered about California. So yeah, and her sister lives there. Okay. Yeah,
1: that sounds kind of fun. It
2: was kind of fun. It's yeah. like the girls. Yeah. Exactly. Taking on
1: Berkeley. Yeah. Would you guys? Did you guys like just rent a house and? Uh huh. Just hippie it out? I don't know. We just...
2: Yeah, my mom was... Just, she was just hanging around. She's a painter, so she was painting. And my sister... with My sister and I are almost 10 years apart, so she was in fourth grade. Uh-huh. And she was having a pretty good time, and I was... I was fine. It was a little sad being 18 and not having any friends around you. Yeah. I spent a lot of time at the Y.
1: Did you? Yeah. Like, what? Doing what?
2: Just, like... Running around on the elliptical trainer. I couldn't figure out what else to do with myself. <laughs>
1: I'm going to get fit. Yeah, exactly. Try to make I did some... it. It did didn't you, work. Did you, so when did you start meeting people? When you went, went to Pitzer?
2: Yeah.
1: And you started to make friends then easily? I had, like,
2: yeah, friends. You
1: seem like more. you would make friends easily.
2: I think I do now. Yeah. Can't really. Thank you.
1: But back then you didn't?
2: No, I think then I was... I would do as long as I have some sort of introduction. Yeah. I'm not, like, the person who can make friends with somebody at the grocery store and start hanging out with them all the time.
1: Or would want to. I mean, yeah. Right. My yeah, sister can. My sister can do that. Yeah. My sister's the person who sits on an airplane and, like, by the end of the flight, they're like hugging.
2: Yeah, yeah. And, I'm and like, like keep in touch for the rest of their lives. Yeah. yeah,
1: and I'm the person who's like sits on the airplane, and, like puts my headphones on, and right. is it's like, like don't talk to me.
2: <laughs> <No>.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Just let me read my SkyMole. Yeah. In peace. <laughs> um, okay, so then you get to Pitzer and you were studying
2: I was poetry. Studying poetry, yeah. Yeah.
1: Who were your poets?
2: Um, Doug Anderson was my main teacher. He's a great poet, and he's got a memoir out, the title of which I cannot remember at this moment. But, right. um, and Amy Gerstler, who's an L.A. poet. She's also fabulous. They did, were sort of my favorites.
1: Did you get into Los Angeles at all, or were you just pretty much out there? Not very there? much. Yeah. yeah.
2: No. Every once in a while, but not in any way that was interesting.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And did you find that, like, it was an easy place to transit? I mean, I guess you'd already been in Berkeley, so you'd already made transitions. It wasn't like you were, like, suddenly.
2: Yeah. And no. I don't think
1: between, between like, Claremont and Santa Fe, it's not that huge of a transition. No, it wasn't. Yeah. Was,
2: that was easy for me. And I traveled a bunch as a kid, too, so I was used to other places.
1: So, like, like, where? Where did you go?
2: My mom and I lived in Mexico for a little while when I was six, for, like, several months.
1: Okay, so you've had a way more interesting life than I have. I don't
2: think that's probably true. Where were you? We were all over, but a lot on the Yucatan Peninsula and in Mexico City, too. We were there right after the huge earthquake in it was 1985, I think. And we we were supposed to arrive on the day of the earthquake. And we didn't go that day. But we ended up... Sissies. Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so lame. <laughs> what would lonely place. Uh, yeah, <laughs> right. We went right after, though. And I remember wandering around Mexico City and buildings falling down everywhere and the smell of amazing tamales. I remember that very well.
1: So what prompted that? Just wanted to have an adventure? Same thing. Like, so your mother, is she's a painter and she's just moving to Mexico. Yeah. Just to go do some cool go stuff. Just to do it, yeah. And she's painting.
2: Uh-huh. And, yeah, hanging out with me. And, and she's
1: selling paintings in Mexico?
2: No, she wasn't selling anything. She's She doesn't care. She's not very good. She doesn't like to represent herself. You know? uh-huh. She's not good at being like, hey, I'm awesome. She she, I mean, is,
1: is she is she awesome? I mean, she, she is. She's yeah. amazing. She so she does sell library. paintings, but someone sells them for her.
2: She yeah, but she doesn't even do that much of it. She could, yeah. But she decides instead to just do it, and now she's working on clay stuff mostly. So she's, but she's just a really good artist, and that's what she wants to be doing. So yeah. She does it.
1: So what was how long were you in Mexico for?
2: We were there for. I think it was a it was a few months we were supposed to be there for a year but we both got a little lonely I think part way through and I was the idea was that I would go to school
1: yeah. but
2: I that was still in my extremely shy period of my life and it was really hard I didn't really speak
1: Spanish now you're in shit. Mexico and you're shy. yeah
2: in Mexico <laughs> shy not speaking Spanish I was like I can't do this yeah so, and she's my mom is a real softy so I was like hey mom I don't want to go and I think she was like I get that let's stay home instead and let's go on that chicken bus again <laughs>
1: What's the chicken bus? There's just
2: always a chicken on the bus.
1: Oh right. Like, yeah. Take the bus. Yeah. Look at the chicken. Right. You're what, 6 years old? Mm-hmm. I can see that. Yeah. I would have been in, I would have been into the chicken.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Wow. and so then graduate cow. Like I mean, do you mind like graduate school started how soon after you got out of you did 4 years and you were done?
2: Yeah. And then I so I was done in 2001 and I went back to grad school in 2005. So it was out for 4 years.
1: And what did you do during that time?
2: i taught fourth grade for a little while on the east coast um we my husband and i went to southeast asia for a few months he wasn't my husband yet he was just my boyfriend then uh spent some time in thailand
1: oh my god living
2: on dollar 50 a day or whatever it was yeah and then we came back and we moved to berkeley we tried to take care of ourselves and be grown-ups not very successfully
1: (laughs) Just pretending.
2: Yeah, just like struggling along with mm. crappy jobs.
1: So now, so now uh, this book is coming out. You're going to go on a tour.
2: Little tour, yeah.
1: Miniature tour. Like, do, how do you feel? Like emotionally? Um, and I guess you just have you have a three month old baby. Mm-hmm. Uh, how you get? How are you managing the emotional aspects of it? Do you find yourself at any point overwhelmed?
2: Definitely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Although, in a way. I am grateful for having the baby because I feel like it kind of deflects some of my own. If I if it was just me headed off on tour, I'm sure I would be really right. worried about myself. Right. And this is nice. Like I don't have to think that much about myself. I'm worrying about how will he travel and what will that be like. Right. Which is better because I'm well, not going to be better at anything because I obsess over it. So.
1: Well, yeah, it's it's weird because the whole thing, it's just a high class problem. Mm-hmm. I've had this com- I've had this is. conversation before, but at the same time, it is kind of a it's a lot to think about. And like most writers, I think I sort of recoil from having that much 10, you know, it's a, any person, it's not healthy to think that much about yourself.
2: Exactly. No, it really isn't. It doesn't feel good.
1: It gets exhausting. Yeah. It gets, but it's also exciting. I mean, it's like, there's not, it's not like there's no positive aspects of it. No. Like giving a reading and having people show up is, uh, it does have a little thrill attached to Definitely, it. Definitely. Yeah. But, um, you know, you have the baby, it's like sort of a nice way to sort of buffer the experience. Mm-hmm. And uh, how many cities are you going to go to?
2: Um, I think it's seven, maybe. So I go to Portland, Palo Alto, Oakland, D.C., New York, and New Mexico on this loop. Wow. Yeah.
1: Wow. And then you're doing media, clearly. Yeah. Big, huge, high-profile huge. shows. Only the
2: most important shows. <laughs> you know, I've been rejecting almost every yeah. <laughs> All the offers, whatever. No,
1: I was really feel really, really glad to get you. Yeah. Um, so do you have a plan?
2: About my life? uh, Yeah.
1: I mean, do you have, like, a plan for, like, what you want? I mean, this is what you want to be doing? You know that you've landed on a career that you think is, like, really suits you? Or do you feel like you're the kind of person who could, like, write a book or two and suddenly decide that you want to become an anthropologist and live in, like, Papua New Guinea?
2: Probably I think this is the right thing for me to be doing. I think that I would like... The thing that I like about writing is that it's expansive and it can turn into a million different things. That's... So I could imagine writing about something that I never would have thought I'd care about in Mm. 10 years, but I think I'll always be, words will always be the way I observe things and discover them.
1: And have you been writing like this whole time or like because the book's coming out and you're kind of entering this like publicity cycle do you find yourself kind of like phasing out writing for the moment?
2: The moment I'm not doing that much writing, honestly, but I did try to keep it up all the way through up until the baby was born. Uh And I even did some writing this winter after, so... This, the next few weeks, I'm not going to try to do that too. Yeah. But yeah, it sort of kept my toe in it at least. But you know, like. but
1: it's, sometimes it's good to take some time. I think, I mean, I yeah. personally can't go, like, I'm going like full bore right now on a book and it's like exhausting. Like,
2: mm-hmm.
1: I, you know, I don't want to sound dismal about it, but like, it's, for me at least, it's really hard work.
2: It's super hard. I mean. Like,
1: it's a grind for me. Mm-hmm. And like, it's, there are moments of like elation and like, it's extremely pleasant, but like, there, there's also a lot of it where you're just like, my goodness, and it it just takes so much out of me. Right. But There may be people who can like write and like with a much more like you know a lighter. Uh huh.
2: Right. They like sit in the <laughs> sun with their tea. And I'm and,
1: like, sl- yeah, I'm yeah. like slouched over this glowing computer screen, right. like suffering. Yeah. You know, totally. internally. Too, yeah. Is that how you are? Yeah. Do you work every day?
2: I, I hope to work every day. When I'm really working, I, I do work every day. But then I do take breaks. So
1: During I'll, the day or just in, like during yeah, the writing?
2: during both. Yeah. So it'll be like, all right, I'm going to write for two hours, and then I'm going to go take a walk. Walking is really an important part of my writing process because that's where it's like, all right, take a breath. What just happened that I cared about? And when I come back to it, I'm usually a little bit smarter. So stopping and doing other things during the day is important, but also stopping and doing other things. Like we were saying before, just that I have to come back to it and see it in a new way. Uh-huh. Otherwise it just, nothing ever starts to come loose. Yeah. Um, it keeps being the, the problems that are there keeping problems unless I walk away for a little while.
1: And you, and you live up in Santa Barbara now. Yeah. So that's a nice place to go walking. Yeah,
2: it's pretty nice. You I just know.
1: go for a little hike. And, a little hike, uh, and beach
2: walks, uh, dolphins. Oh, God. It's very refreshing. Uh,
1: how long have you been up there for?
2: About a year and a half.
1: And you, are you going to stay?
2: We'll see. It's yeah. It depends on jobs, right. money, all that stuff. Yeah. It is a little on the expensive side. It's so side nice, though. Bed. It's so nice. It's got
1: to be the best place like to... It's got to be the best quality of life of any place. I kind
2: it. of, I think it really is.
1: Weather, surroundings... Yeah, culture. It's
2: like small enough,
1: but big enough everywhere.
2: But big enough, there's actually things going on. You don't feel trapped. Right. Couple hours from LA. Do you
1: surf or anything? I
2: don't surf. Although if we stay, I'm gonna learn. Yeah. I've surfed once.
1: I'm not. I tried. Yeah. I couldn't get it. Couldn't do it. And plus, I just don't. I don't. I can't fit that in. It's a
2: whole right. Exactly. It's a way of life. Higher another thing (laughs) you have to care about and do every day. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Do you think you could fit it in? Do you think you could make that work?
2: Maybe. It's really like about a two-minute drive to my house, the one little break in Santa Barbara. So if I was going to fit it in, it would probably be the most possible place for that to happen. But mm. I don't know. It's probably unlikely. It's pro- <laughs> yeah. Well, we can But ha- maybe the kid will surf.
1: Yeah. That would be good. I've had that dream, too. Where yeah. I'm like, we'll get her on a surfboard when she's four. Right. Like, that would be cool. It
2: would be cool. Girl, no. You
1: know, and girls who surf, like, totally that's a awesome. cool thing to be able to do. Yeah. Anyone who can surf, it's a cool thing to be able to do. No,
2: it's especially cool as a girl. Yeah. Speak
1: two languages and surf. Yeah, exactly. if I If I get that accomplished, she can be, you know, a complete idiot in right. all other aspects. <laughs> <from>. <laughs> but she's bilingual and she can surf.
2: You're done. done You're and done, done as a father.
1: We have figured a lot of stuff out here today. Yeah,
2: I think we really have.
1: Well, uh... I congratulate you. This is all very exciting, and thank you for making time to be here.
2: Absolutely. Thank you. It's a pleasure.
1: Okay, everybody, there you go. That's the show. That's Ramona Ausubel. Go get her novel. It's called No One is Here Except All of Us. It's out from Riverhead right now, wherever books are sold. And if you want to track her down on the web, you can find her at RamonaAusubel.com. And Ausubel is spelled A-U-S-U-S. U-B-E-L You can find her on Twitter at Ramona underscore Ausabel, and she has a Facebook page as well This show has a website It's otherpeoplepod.com It has a Twitter feed at otherpeoplepod I have a Twitter feed at Brad Listy. The show has a Facebook presence and if you want to write to me let me know what you think The address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com Be sure to check out the thenervousbreakdown.com You can follow it on the Twitter at TNB Tweets Thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the great music Be sure to check out killrockstars.com And uh, if you, you right now listening, you, if you like the show and you're finding it entertaining, if you're finding it beneficial, please take two minutes, go to iTunes, give it a good rating, and write a nice review. It is actually beneficial to the show, and I would be hugely appreciative. Please do that if you're feeling warm feelings right now. Speaking of warm feelings, uh, I just took my daughter to the park, and uh, I was walking our dog, Walter. We went out for a stroll uh, in the evening. Uh, Walter is a French bulldog, and he is uh, out of shape. He's been a little neglected since we had the baby, and uh, he looks sort of poor sign. He looks porcine anyway, but now he looks especially porcine, sign, somewhat pig-like. Uh, and uh, we go, you know, we just went to this park near our, uh, near my place, and there's all kinds of kids out. They're in the park, and uh, these kids wind up getting excited about Walter, and uh, they get very excited about the dog. And then these two mothers come over, and they ask me if the children can say hello to the dog, and uh, of course I say sure. And it's a bunch of little girls. And uh, one of the little girls, she started shrieking and trying to essentially tackle Walter. She wanted to uh, kind of like lie across him. She wanted to lay her body on his body. And she wanted to shriek. And uh, so Walter was so tired from having to walk over there uh, that he didn't really have the energy to move or, or, you know, uh, attempt any kind of escape. So he was essentially uh, just surrendering while this girl was lying across his body this like 4-year-old girl and she was making an incredibly high-pitched sound uh, as if she were calling the dolphins to shore and so not that big of a deal but what what troubles me is just that these mothers were standing there talking while this was happening and I'm standing there like for real like you're just going to let this happen like this is normal you just let you, you just let your child lie on somebody's dog and start shrieking but apparently so. So, uh, just so you know, for the record, I would not let my daughter do that. I, I do think there's certain etiquette when it comes to people's animals. Not that I'm that uptight, but I mean this was ridiculous. You know, you let you don't you don't let your child lie on some strange animal and uh, begin shrieking. You just don't do that. Uh, and it's a good thing that Walter's a nice dog. You know, he's he's actually a complete coward. Uh, he cowers in the face of all animals. Uh, any dog that approaches Walter, he uh, he rolls over, even if the dog is much smaller. Uh, you know like a chihuahua can come up to him and he will he will immediately throw in the towel which uh which I like about him i find it endearing and uh you know he's french he surrenders easily get it uh okay so i'll uh, i'm going to sign off i'll finish things up with a bit of a flourish this is actually by request i've had people ask me to do this so i'm going to do it uh i've got a special guest in studio here she is can you say dad da What's my name? Hmm. Uh oh. Uh oh. <laughs> Can you say Elmo? Elmo. Um, Can you say no, no? No, no. You say I know. I
0: know.
1: Can you say Bubbles?
0: Bubbles.
1: Can you say Walter?
0: Walter.
1: Say Wah Wah. You say hello. Can you say hi?
0: Hi.
1: Can you say bye bye?